Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Did you know? Game Freak originally intended for every copy of Gen 1 to be personalized, but Shigeru Miyamoto told them to make different color versions instead. In Gen 1's release version, when you boot up a new game, it randomly assigns you a trainer ID number between 1 and 65,000. 535. This ID system is actually a leftover from a time when there were 65,535 different versions planned. Last year, Did You Know Gaming spent thousands of dollars to make a video series about a lost Pokédex only released in Japan in an official 1996 book simply titled Pokédex, which we had translated by Nabogasawara, the man who translated the original Pokémon games. That Pokédex book also includes an eight-page interview with every developer who worked on Pokémon, including programmers Takenori Oda, where he says, We also considered having each game generate a random ID number the first time it was booted up, and that number would determine which Pokémon appeared in the game. This crumb of information piqued our curiosity, so DYKG's been translating every Japanese interview we could get our hands on ever since, now totaling over 100 pages. Eventually, we found a little more info in the November 1997 issue of Famimaga 64, this time from Game Freak's founder Satoshi Tajiri. Looking back on Pokémon's development, Tajiri said, The shape of a forest, the Pokémon that appear, I wanted to make a game that would be different for everyone, but it was difficult. So I went to consult with Shigeru Miyamoto from Nintendo, and we ended up deciding to make it so, depending on the color, whether red or green, the worlds would be parallel, but different. This statement told us that not only were the Pokémon in each cartridge all different, but even Kanto itself was, with locations changing based on your trainer ID number. Eventually, we translated the biggest Satoshi Tajiri interview ever published, which was conducted in May 2000 and printed in a 600-page book called Pokémon Story. The interview itself is 34 pages long, and we'll publish it in its entirety in the future, but for now, we just want to highlight the part where Tajiri says every cartridge was like a different world. He said, So, we randomly assigned auto-generated ID numbers from 1 to 65,000 to every game cartridge. With the cartridge IDs randomly determined, Pokémon caught in those games would all carry that ID number. So long as someone wasn't trading with 65,000 different people, the odds of trading with someone with the same ID were unlikely. With both parties having different numbers, their Pokémon would be entering different worlds when traded. Then, 
Once the number is assigned, it would never change throughout the course of the game. I talked to Miyamoto about how we'd make players understand that every cartridge is different when they buy one, and he told me the system sounded interesting, but it was a bit difficult to grasp. He said if players can't tell just by looking at it, then it won't work out, and it would be better if the game's color or appearance were different. I was shocked when I was allowed to do that. I told him it would really help me out if I could. So it was from trying to differentiate ID numbers that the idea to symbolically change the colors came about. I thought we should do it, but alter the colors for real. We needed to do more to make the different color games have all kinds of details in them that were a bit different. Here, Tajiri says 65,000, but the exact number was 65,535, which is the highest number that can be represented by an unsigned 16-bit binary number. Or, to put it in simpler terms, 65,535 is the biggest number you can use on a Game Boy without slowing down the entire game and overcomplicating the programming. There were only nine developers working on Pokemon, so it's difficult to imagine they'd try to build 65,000 different versions of Kanto by hand, especially since it took them six years just to make the base game. So, Game Freak probably would have had to use randomly generated landscapes, similar to what they did a few years later in the Pokemon Mystery Dungeon games on Game Boy Advance and DS. Randomly generated environments were possible on the original Game Boy and can be found in games like Dragon Quest Monsters and Shiren the Wanderer, but those games came out after Pokemon had already released. Though there was at least one Game Boy title with random dungeons that came out before Pokemon, a 1991 game called Cave Noir. However, it was so simple that Tajiri probably would not have been satisfied with that level of quality. And his idea was slightly different, in that the game was not going to randomize during gameplay, but rather all at once right from the beginning, which meant Tajiri was swimming in uncharted waters, and it sounded like he was was having difficulties wrapping his head around such an ambitious idea. Pokemon did break new ground in many ways, like being the first game to allow trading through the Game Boy Link cable, but producing 65,000 Kantos would have been significantly more complicated. In that 34-page interview, Tajiri went on to say that after Miyamoto convinced him to give up on the idea for 65,000 different versions of Gen 1, he still wanted to make between 5 and 7 different color versions, but he realized even 7 iterations of the same game would be tricky. Not only in terms of development, but even outside forces like the factory not wanting to produce multiple cartridges and packaging for what they viewed as an identical product. So eventually, he had no choice but to settle for less. In Satoshi Tajiri's biographical manga, there's a six-page interview where Miyamoto tells us what happened next. He says, I came up with the slogan, the game begins when you choose a cartridge, and we made models for three colors, red, green, and blue. Then then, later in development, we narrowed it down to just two versions, and it looked like we were going to use red and blue. But we ultimately decided that Venusaur's design was so good that we released red and green instead. And so, over the course of a few months, 65,000 variations were whittled down to just two, featuring different version-exclusive Pokémon, different encounter rates, and various other small changes, like which Pokémon you can buy at the game corner. This format of releasing two different color versions of nearly 
identical games continued into all future generations. However, it's a fun thought experiment to consider how different the series might have been if Miyamoto left Game Freak to their own devices. If there had been 65,000 different versions of Kanto, presumably the same format would have been carried over into Johto, Hoenn, Sinnoh, and every other Pokémon region. Just imagine playing with your friends and looking over their shoulder to see how different their world is compared to yours. Or, to put it in more modern terms, imagine watching your favorite Let's Player as they explore a game with details you'll likely never experience firsthand. And just think about what it would have done for replayability. But these are far from the only secrets we've discovered on our journey, so we figured we'd share all the other development secrets within those hundred pages of interviews, like that Gen 1 almost didn't have multiplayer Pokémon battles, and that the only player-to-player -player interactions would have been buying, selling, and trading Pokémon to and with each other. In fact, multiplayer battles only barely made it in at the last minute because Nintendo demanded it, and since the big N was funding development, Game Freak had no choice but to comply. But they did it in the laziest way possible, a system where you just watched Pokémon fight on their own, with zero input from the player. Gen 1 programmer Shigeki Morimoto explains it best in that 1996 Pokédex book, saying, President Tajiri had wanted us to implement battling for a while, but I personally didn't find the idea very interesting, and just thought it would be a pain to program. It looked like we would run out of time and would have to scrap the battling feature, but Nintendo made it clear they wanted battles in the game, so we had to make it happen. So I just thought, well, no choice then, it has to be done. And the early battles were something you just watched. You would just see there was a battle, and who won, and who lost. We showed that to Nintendo, and the surveys we got back called it boring. Uh, I guess they were right, but we were cutting it close to the deadline, trying to add in battles that the player commands. Uh, ultimately, it's what everyone wanted, so we got it to work with the link cable, and made it a reality. Satoshi Tajiri was also in that interview and helped explain how in-game currency would have helped make up for the lack of PvP battles. Every Pokémon would have had a specified monetary value, and you'd purchase them at in-game stores or buy and sell with your friends. According to Tajiri, the only reason the focus on cash ended up being cut was due to hardware limitations. He said, In Pokémon's early development, you could buy Pokémon with money, but that resulted in the player focusing on saving money to buy them, and less motivation to struggle catching them in the wild. We also thought about making one player pay money in addition to their trade when there was an obvious difference in the value of two Pokémon being traded, but implementing Pokémon monetary values was beyond the limits of our programming. Transferring money in the game is very different from wiring money in real life, and there were difficulties getting it to work on the Game Boy. There were just too many obstacles to overcome to make it happen. We had no choice but to focus on what we wanted most and give up on the rest. In this case, being able to trade Pokémon was our top priority, so we cut the monetary value feature. Adding a little more info, Game Freak developer Akihito Tamisawa wrote a book in 2000 where he says, In the initial plan, every town had a shop that sold Pokémon, so you could buy tons of them if you had enough money. But what was once thought of as an outstanding idea to have Pokémon stores ultimately got cut. In Gen 1's final build, there are still a few Pokémon you can buy, like a Magikarp for 500 Poké Dollars, and a few more like Scyther and Porygon at the Celadon Game Corner, but buying Pokémon was originally a much 
much more central mechanic. And we can see one of these Pokemon stores in some of Ken Sugimori's earliest concept art back when the game was still called Capsule Monsters. Even HP bars almost got cut in development. Game Freak only made action games prior to working on Pokemon, so much of Red and Green's development was spent fumbling around in the dark. They wanted to make Pokemon as simple to understand as possible. So, they removed the use of numbers wherever they could, even in Pokemon battles. In a 2019 issue of Famitsu Weekly, Junichi Masuda said, Of course we thought Tajiri's idea was fun and exciting, but we had a problem. We didn't have any experience making RPGs. In the final game, HP is displayed with a meter, but at one point in development it was represented with text. We came up with 16 different statuses, descriptions like, they're still okay, or it's gonna get pretty bad soon. But it wasn't very interesting, so we scrapped it. And in the July 2000 edition of Nintendo Online Magazine, Masuda explained that incoming damage worked the same way with phrases like, that hurt, and that really hurt, to give players some idea of how much damage they'd taken. But ultimately, they realized that the entire system just kinda sucked, so they replaced it with the standard HP system used in most other RPGs. Another scrapped idea we want to talk about is how Gen 1 was originally played for keeps, where if you lost a battle, you lost your Pokémon. In Nintendo Online Magazine, the original Pokémon designer Ken Sugimori said when Satoshi Tajiri first came to him and was trying to explain the Pokémon concept, he said it would be like the Menko cards they played with when they were kids. In case you're not familiar, Menko in lots of different shapes and sizes. Kids collect these cards and can use them to play a game sort of like battling. Then in the end, the winner gets to keep some of the loser's cards. In Famimaga 64 magazine, Tajiri said he originally planned for Pokemon battles to play out in a similar fashion. The interviewer asked, Don't you think it would be interesting if when you lost a Pokemon battle, your opponent took your Pokemon? Like with Menko cards? And Tajiri replied, Actually, I made something like that as a prototype. But in the end, the frustration of having Pokemon you raised taken away from you was too great, so I scrapped that idea. Pokémon's first generation took a lot of twists and turns over the course of its six-year production, and it's fun to think about just how different the series might have been if they hadn't altered direction at various points in development. We know some of you prefer to read these interviews in their entirety, so today we published a bunch of them in text form. You can find links in the pinned comment below. Did you know gaming put a ton of research into this video? So if you enjoyed it, please give it a like and share it with a friend. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. We've spent hundreds of hours researching Pokemon myths for this video, combing through countless gaming magazines from across the world, hunting down people involved with the myths, bringing in Pokemon experts to fact check, and crawling back through time to find out how the myths spread. Today, we're using this research to debunk three Pokemon myths, and we're so confident in our research that we're putting over $1,000 where our mouths are if anyone can debunk our debunkings. But. More on that later. For now, sit back and relax as we upend some of the internet's more beloved Pokemon myths. 
First off, likely our most controversial debunking, is there actually any proof that Satoshi Tajiri is autistic? You can find this claim made frequently on YouTube, Twitter, the Autism Wiki, and even the UK's BBC says Tajiri is autistic. But what's the actual source they're all citing? Most of them either don't cite a source at all, or in the BBC's case, they cite this article from theartofautism.com, which doesn't cite a source of its own. Instead, it backs up its claim simply by saying, is Satoshi Tajiri autistic? Satoshi has gone on record saying that he wanted the games to give children the same joy as he had during his bug collection. Collecting. People with autism tend to take up collecting as a hobby, so Satoshi gave them and everyone else a gift that only he could create. A whole new thing to collect. And that's pretty much it. But apparently it was good enough for the BBC to use as their source and spread the rumor further. However, there's no record of Satoshi Tajiri ever saying he's autistic, or that any of his friends or co-workers at Game Freak said it either. In fact, one website which repeated the rumor was sent an email by Game Freak's information coordinator Yuri Sakurai, who told them Satoshi Tajiri doesn't have autism or Asperger's, and asked them to delete the claim from their website. At the time, Tajiri's Wikipedia page said he was autistic, and used this site as its source. The site in turn said the British outlet The Independent was their source. In fact, tons of websites say Tajiri's autistic. But where did the rumor actually begin? Working backwards from the websites that do cite their sources, it seems many of them read it in the 2009 biographical book Satoshi Tajiri, Pokemon Creator, which we bought on Amazon and read cover to cover. The whole book's riddled with countless errors, even on the very first page, like listing Diamond and Pearl's release as 2004 instead of 2006. The book makes two references to Tajiri's alleged autism. On page 9 it says, In spite of his record-breaking success, Tajiri is a soft-spoken man who shuns the media and the spotlight. This may be related to his diagnosis with Asperger syndrome, a form of autism which affects social behavior and communication skills. And on page 33, in spite of Pokemon's global fame and popularity, Tajiri remains a quiet, private person. Some have called him reclusive and eccentric. Many believe these characteristics are a result of Asperger syndrome, a type of autism. While Tajiri has confirmed this diagnosis, he has not discussed it publicly. We reached out to the book's author, Lori Mortensen, and asked a few interview questions. Apparently, she's written over 100 books, most of them in only a few weeks, and she decided to write about Satoshi Tajiri not because she's a Pokemon fan, but because her kids are fans. Miss Mortensen also told us her source for the autism claims. Here Here's her full response via email, unedited. She said, When I researched this book in 2008, I discovered Satoshi Tajiri's MySpace page that clearly showed a connection with the Aspie community. I mentioned the MySpace source in my original text, however Kid Haven Press chose not to include it in the book because this book was written for young readers and they felt that MySpace was an inappropriate site for that age group. MySpace was just the beginning of what would explode into the social media world we're familiar with today. A few years after the book was released, I checked Satoshi Tajiri's MySpace page again, and discovered it had changed a lot and no longer mentioned Asperger's. I wish I would have had the print screen option on my keyboard back then. Since the age of online innocence has passed, looking back, it could also be argued that someone else created the Satoshi Tajiri page pretending to be him. At the time, the MySpace page felt authentic. If I was writing the book today, I would handle the research and documentation differently. That MySpace page doesn't exist anymore, but bits and pieces of it can still be found on the internet's Wayback Machine. We'll admit we can't prove
prove it's fake, but we can't prove there's no teapot orbiting Mars either. Just the idea that Satoshi Tajiri had an English-language MySpace page in 2008 is pretty laughable, and what's left of it is pretty ridiculous as well. For example, Tajiri's bio said, I love movies, but my favorite kind are of course the Pokemon ones, my own creation because I'm cool like that. And for favorite TV shows it said, Pokemon, 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 Pokemon. Gotta catch them all. So yeah, we're confident in saying this MySpace page didn't belong to the real Satoshi Tajiri. Some of the other websites saying Tajiri's autistic cite Wikipedia as their source. Tajiri's Wikipedia page first had the autism claim added in 2005 by wiki editor N.P. Chilla without a source, and 15 years later when other wiki editors eventually asked where he got that information, he never responded. Long story short, this branch of the rumor tree appears to be a case of cytogenesis, a sort of information laundering where claims are added to Wikipedia without citation. Then news sites use Wikipedia as a source to repeat the claim in their own articles, then those articles are pointed to as reputable sources for citation in future articles. Lots of people who ended up spreading the misinformation appear to have a credible source, like the BBC, but when you go digging to see where it all began, you just find some rando who wrote it on Wikipedia. As far as we can can tell, this 2005 Wikipedia edit and Tajiri's fake MySpace page spread the rumor far and wide, and the fact it eventually got printed in an actual book gave it an air of legitimacy. We also checked the Japanese side of the internet, and there were a few websites claiming Tajiri's autistic, but they had the exact same citation issues as their western counterparts. In other words, Japanese fans spreading the rumor don't have a source either, which might be disappointing to hear for some. Just to be clear, we aren't saying there's no chance that Tajiri is autistic. We're just pointing out that there's never been any confirmation, and that every statement about Satoshi's alleged autism goes back to the same dubious sources. There's no direct evidence to support any of those claims, and no primary source to back them up. So for all intents and purposes, we're classifying this rumor about Tajiri being autistic as false. Another popular fan theory is that Ditto was a failed attempt at cloning Mew. Or, put another way, scientists screwed up trying to make Mewtwo, and that's how Ditto was born. You might have seen it promoted on websites like Game Rant, Screen Rant, Games Radar, and a bunch of fan wikis. This theory's also been propped up by quite a few YouTube videos that pulled in millions of views, like this one. <laughs> and this video, by Gamer from Mars. As for evidence, proponents point to the fact that Ditto and Mew have the same color palette, the same shiny palette, the same weight, they're both gender unknown, Mewtwo is said to be the first successful clone of Mew, and Ditto can be found in Cerulean Cave and the Pokemon Mansion. We admit it's a fun theory and we'd kind of like to believe it ourselves, but unfortunately the evidence just doesn't stack up. First off, there's no record of developers talking about any connection between the two Pokémon whatsoever. In fact, they've done nothing but douse cold water on the theory. In 2012, Game Informer asked series director Junichi Masuda about the theory and whether or not Ditto was a failed attempt at cloning a Mew. Masuda replied, That's the first time I have ever heard that rumor, actually. Game Informer then asked, Is that your only answer? With Masuda replying, In terms of how Pokémon are designed, they are each their own living being. The unique thing about Ditto is that it's a Pokémon that can change forms, but each Pokémon we create with its own unique element, so we just make sure they are all individual life forms of their own. Obviously, Masuda didn't have a bulletproof response to a fan theory he'd never heard before, because of course Mewtwo isn't entirely its own unique being, but regardless, his answer was clearly a no. We posted this quote on Twitter last year, but a huge amount of fans refused to acknowledge Masuda as a legit source. Some dismissed it, as Gen 1's credit 
credits only list him as a programmer and composer, not a Pokémon designer. But Masuda's been at Game Freak since before the company started developing Pokémon. In fact, he knew Tajiri even earlier from their days attending the same technical college. Tajiri, Masuda, and seven other core developers spent six years making red and green in close quarters, and they all worked together to decide which designs made it in, and helped do each other's jobs. In a 2018 interview with Japanese newspaper Yomiuri, Red and Green's planner Koji Nishino said, We didn't have enough people, so job categories were all jumbled, and we really would do whatever. I would make resources within the game, and programmers would make designs as well. So it's not like Masuda was just composing music in a different department for six years. Together with Tajiri and Sugimori, he was one of the three main devs, and worked with the team throughout his entire career as series director. Some theorists say they'll only accept a direct quote from Ditto's creator, but it seems Ditto is one of the many Pokémon Game Freak came up with as a team effort. According to Ken Sugimori in that same interview, the process of designing Pokémon was complicated, with multiple people putting their ideas together and modifying the design to create a single character. Because of this, we have always refrained from simply saying who designed which Pokémon. So for those who say Masuda is not credible and they're waiting to hear from the one person who designed Ditto, well, that one person probably doesn't exist. Masuda also appears to have first-hand knowledge of Ditto's creation. Since a year and a half before he denied the Mew cloning theory, Masuda and Sugimori told at Gamer Magazine that Ditto was born as a tribute to the classic yellow smiley face. We know there's a lot of fans who, regardless of what the developers say, still think Mew and Ditto have so much in common that the theory must be true. And it can't all just be a coincidence. So let's look at the facts presented by the theory's proponents, starting with Mew and Ditto having the same color palette. First of all, there were only 10 possible color palettes in red, green, and blue versions, and all 150 Pokémon had to share them. So two Pokémon having the same palette isn't unusual. But more importantly, Mew and Ditto's palettes aren't even the same. Here's a side-by-side -side comparison with each other's hex code. Mew only shares the same palette with two other Pokémon, Mewtwo and Jinx, while Ditto shares its palette with 23 other Pokémon. Mew and Ditto's palettes don't match in future generations either. Even the Pokédex's color classification system added in Gen 3 calls Mew pink and Ditto purple. Their shiny palettes are different as well. They might look the same to a casual observer, but a closer inspection reveals the differences, and the hex codes remove all doubt. Yes, they're both various shades of blue, but so were about 50 other shinies in Gen 2. They both weigh 4 kilograms, but two Pokémon weighing the same is common. In fact, Bellsprout and Shelder also weigh 4 kilograms. At this point, it's actually Shelder who's got more in common with Ditto. They not only share the same weight, but they're also the exact same height, and they actually do have the same color palette. Of course, we're not saying Ditto and Shelder share some secret connection, we're just pointing out that every Pokémon has many little details in common with lots of other Pokémon. As of this video's publication, there are 9 Pokémon who weigh 4 kilograms, 10 who weigh 5 kilograms, and so on. Mew and Ditto are both gender unknown. That's also true. But Mew can breed with nothing, while Ditto can breed with everything. That's not really the same. It's kind of the opposite. Another talking point is that in red, green, and blue versions, you can find wild Ditto in Cerulean Cave. 
the same place as Mewtwo, but the cave is home to 27 of Kanto's 79 evolutionary lines, mostly the fully evolved forms, which is more than a third of the entire dex. Practically all the best Pokémon can be found in Cerulean Cave, and what exactly would this imply? That when Mewtwo fled to the cave and wanted to be nice so it brought Ditto along for the ride? Ditto can also be found on routes 13, 14, 15, and 23, and in Japanese Blue's Rock Tunnel, which definitely weakens the connection since it's all over Kanto and not just Cerulean Cave. In Pokémon Yellow and the remakes, Ditto can also be found in the Pokémon Mansion, which we admit is interesting, but the Mansion scientists could have been studying Ditto for any number of reasons. After all, the 1996 Pokédex book says Ditto is, quote, one of the most enigmatic Pokémon ever, so it's not surprising Kanto's scientists want to put it under a microscope. If you're interested in environmental storytelling, one could argue that half the Pokémon in the mansion wandered in from Cinnabar's natural habitat, like Vulpix, Growlithe, and Ponyta, and the other half were brought to the mansion by scientists who wanted to study them, like Grimer, Coughing, and Rattata, which if you wanted to infer purpose, might have been used as lab rats. Proponents also highlight that Mew and Ditto can both learn Transform by leveling up, but it's not unique, as Mew also learns Metronome by leveling up, which otherwise in Gen 1 can only be learned by Clefairy and Clefable. Another similarity the theorists point to is that Mew and Ditto both have base stats that are even across the board, but Mew 2 actually is a clone of Mew, and its stats aren't even across the board. Speaking of which, Mewtwo weighs 122 kilograms, not 4, which also means there's no reason a clone should weigh the same as the original. Fans of the theory often point out this alleged fact, touted as evidence by the gamer from Mars in his video, but nowhere in the game does it actually say that, or any of the games for that matter. We can't be sure why many think this text is in the game, but it might be due to this scene from Mewtwo Strikes Back. For years we struggled to successfully clone a Pokémon to prove our theories, but you're the first specimen to survive. So yes, Mewtwo was the first successful clone, but all the other attempts died. They didn't become new species of Pokémon. And besides, this line wasn't even in the original Japanese version. Speaking of Japan, we looked around the internet in Japanese as well, and found the same sorts of rumor videos and theory posts, but nothing we haven't already talked about, and certainly nothing official. It seems the fan theory is actually more popular in the West than it is in Japan. Simply put, when it comes to the cold hard facts, this theory just doesn't hold up. Half the supporting evidence is false, and the other half is the same sort of coincidental similarities shared between countless other Pokémon. In recent months, we translated dozens of interview pages where Satoshi Tajiri and Shigeki Morimoto go into exhaustive detail about Mew. You can check out our recent Mew Origins video to hear all about it. They talk about hidden F4 phantoms, dogs that don't exist, and countless other details, but they never mention Ditto at all. The Ditto Mew theory's been around forever, so let's move on to a more recent rumor. That Professor Ivy is a lesbian. Or more precisely, that the original head writer of the anime, Takeshi Shudo, liked to think she was a lesbian. This idea has existed on message boards for years as fan speculation, but it wasn't until 2020 that it gained mainstream attention after Twitter user Crimson made a viral tweet presenting it as a fact. Over the next few days, this fact got picked up and promoted by websites like GameRant, Flipboard, Pink News, Pride.com, ComicBook.com, and countless Reddit and Twitter threads. Just to give you an idea how these websites legitimize the rumor, here's what ComicBook.com wrote. The information surfaced in 
Pocket Monsters, The Animation, a book that Takeshi Shudo penned before his death. The man worked as the writer for Pokemon's original anime, as well as its first two films. In the past, the writer has shared his surprising headcanons and desires for Pokemon, and it seems another has come to life. And what might that be? Well, it turns out Shudo believed Professor Ivy was a lesbian, and that is why Brock was devastated after leaving her. We interviewed Crimson, the Twitter user who made the story go viral, and he said he encountered the rumor presented as fact in this message board thread on BulbaGarden.net. He told us, I heard this claim pretty often in the Anipoke community, so I'm like, huh, if people are saying this, then it must be true. Crimson is just a normal guy with a few hundred followers, and he thought it was cool so he tweeted it, never expecting it to go viral. But it did go viral, which made him exclaim, quote, oh damn. A lot of fans were thrilled to hear the news, but a few asked for a source, so Crimson told them it came from Shudo's book, The Animation, but he'd never actually read the book. After getting some pushback, he deleted his viral tweet after realizing it might not actually be true, and he didn't want to spread misinformation. As part of our fact-checking process, we did read the animation. There's actually two books, and for the most part, they're just novelizations of the early anime, starting with the first episode and ending with the showdown at Vermilion City, which means the story ends long before the Orange Islands and Professor Ivy even come into the picture. She's never mentioned even once. Just for good measure, we also checked all 226 entries of Takeshi Shudo's personal blog, where he talks at great length about what he was thinking when he was working on the anime, and he never said anything about Professor Ivy's sexuality there either. The news outlets that promoted the story didn't fact-check before publishing, and they never posted corrections after either. Crimson told us, My tweet admittedly didn't have too deep of a source, so it feels like these websites just wanted to gain clout for something that may not even be true. Crimson's deleted tweet continued spreading the rumor even to this day. Just a couple months ago, another Twitter user named Dragon Milf screenshotted Crimson's deleted tweet and made it go viral all over again, garnering almost 60,000 likes and getting shared more than 8,000 times. Crimson said he warned Dragon Milfs the claim was dubious, but his warning was ignored as the tweet racked up more and more retweets. We checked in with the Japanese fanbase as well, and the earliest suggestion of Ivy being a lesbian we could find was an ancient message board from 2002. It's basically just some random users cooking up fan theories without ever claiming to have an official source. We found a more recent thread where it's mentioned, but the poster says he heard the rumor from foreigners on the internet. No one was able to point to an official source, and almost everything else we found in Japanese was Rule 34. And look, fans can have any headcanon they want. But there's nothing in the show that suggests Professor Ivy is a lesbian, and there's no record of Shudo saying he likes to think of her as one. We spent a lot of time fact-checking this video, but there's always the possibility that legitimate developer quotes are out there somewhere, maybe in a late 90s Japanese magazine no one knows about, that undo what we've said here today. We're confident in our research, but in the interest of leaving no stone unturned, we're offering a $350 bounty on each myth to the first person who can provide a direct quote from Takeshi Shudo or Gen 1's core team that proves any of these myths are actually true. We debunked three myths today, so we're putting ourselves on the hook for a total of over $1,000. If that ever happens, we'll post the quote that debunks our debunking in the pinned comment under this video so everyone can see it. And we'll post it on Twitter as well at Did You Know Gaming without the G. Did you know 
Instead of badges, Pokemon trainers almost traveled around collecting belts. Drawing inspiration from East Asian martial arts, the first gym leader would have given you a white belt and the last gym leader a black belt. Game Freak even considered letting you whip your Pokemon with them, like some sort of lion tamer. In our hunt for Pokemon secrets for this video, we went to great lengths to ensure that these facts would actually be something that, you know, roughly 99% of you had never heard of. And one thing we did was have 100 pages of a Japan-only book translated, which was written by Game Freak developer Akihito Tomisawa, and it's where this first fact comes from. In the book, Tomisawa writes, The development staff decided humans should have ranks as monster trainers. The initial idea was that, as the player's Pokémon reached a certain level of strength, they would earn belts like a martial artist. Recreating their conversation, he recalls them saying, Not just white belts and black belts like in Judo, there should be more colors. Well, if you could receive a belt, what if you could use it as a training whip? Like a red whip, or a black whip, or a yellow whip? Tommy Sauer goes on to say that, ultimately, it was too cruel to make the player whip their Pokémon, so the idea got scrapped. Their relationship with the player should be friendlier, like a pet owner, so eventually it was decided you'd earn badges instead. But even though the belt idea got thrown out, actual whips were still very much on the menu. As we've mentioned in the past, this beta sprite shows Trainer Red carried a whip at some point in Red and Green's development. And even though Red's eventually got taken away, lots of other trainers' whips still made it into Generation 1's final build. Another interesting story we found in our translations was the time Pokémon's creator, Satoshi Tajiri, gave away a copy of Pokémon Red where the player was named Dumbass. In a 1997 issue of Japanese magazine Famimaga 64, he tells the interviewer Yuki, Recently I've been buying used copies of Pokémon at second-hand stores. It's interesting to see the nicknames people give their Pokémon. The player's name on this red one is a real gem. He named himself Dumbass. Maybe so the game will say, Player is a Dumbass, in the menu. Then, Tajiri whips out copies of red and blue that he pasted homemade stickers onto, which, if they still exist, are probably worth a fortune nowadays. After joking around with Yuki for a while, he gives her the custom red cartridge as a gift, then says he'll give away the custom blue cart and five of his autographs in a contest for the magazine's readers. Yuki wants to keep them all to herself, but eventually they agree Tajiri will also give away his copy of Red, where the player is named Dumbass. Whoever the lucky kid was who won the contest hopefully never overwrote that save file. Our next fact is about where the idea for fossil Pokémon came from. The answer can be found in a 34-page interview Tajiri did in the Japanese book Pokémon Story, published in the year 2000. It's pretty well known that Tajiri caught bugs as a kid in the mountains and forests near his home in rural Japan. His town modernized rapidly as he grew older, and the nature he'd catch bugs in got paved over and turned into a city, complete with an arcade where he'd often skip school to go play video games. As an adult, he combined those two ideas catching bugs and video games in order to make Pokémon. But what you probably haven't heard is the longer version of the story he tells in this book, where he says the construction workers discovered tons of fossils as they were paving over his childhood. Construction came to a total standstill until the fossil situation could be sorted out, and during that
that time, Tajiri and his friends made a habit of going to the site to dig up fossils of their own. He goes on to say that he later took a school trip to the Izu Islands south of Tokyo, and that's how he came up with Cinnabar Island. In fact, the entirety of Kanto was based on his own childhood. Even Kanto's size was based on how far he could ride his bike as a kid. He says, I was able to ride my bike about 10 kilometers from home. The way riding my bike expanded the world around me was part of my inspiration for Pokemon. When you use a train, you feel like you're taking a trip. So for Pokemon, I wanted to keep things more grounded, like how my friends and I would see how far we could ride from home, to create a world that felt real. A little later in the interview, Tajiri says Generation 2's game world was based on how far he could take a train, which is why the region was originally modeled after the whole of Japan. 18 years after this interview, an early build of gold and silver leaked online, finally giving fans a chance to see the region Tajiri was talking about, which ultimately got scrapped and replaced with Johto. Check it out, it's Japan turned on its side. And now for more of a light-hearted tidbit, have you ever noticed Unova champion Alder breaks the rules of the Pokemon world by carrying more than six Pokeballs? We found an explanation in a 2010 issue of Japanese magazine Nintendo Dream, where Alder's creator, Yusuke Omura, says it's because he never learned how to use a computer. And also, weirdly, Omura had trouble making Alder not look like Jesus. <laughs> he says, As I drew Alder, I thought of him as a charming person, but my initial design was far too evangelist-like. He looked like Christ or something. But I couldn't get that image out of my head, so I consulted with Sugimori, who told me to dial back the evangelist shtick so he'd look like some kind of wanderer. Also, Alder has Pokeballs hanging not only around his neck, but under his cloak as well. That's because he doesn't know how to use a PC, so he's unable to store his Pokemon. Generation 5's art director Ken Sugimori was in that interview as well, and added, You're only supposed to be able to carry six at a time, so having seven or more Pokeballs is weird. But he can't use a PC, so he carries them all with him, not just his main team. All his balls are just jangling around. Ooh la la. Our next fact actually comes from that 1997 Famimaga 64 interview we mentioned earlier. One question Yuki asked Tajiri was why Porygon exists. Simply put, Porygon was created to be ironic as a response to all the people who told him 1996 was too late to make a Game Boy game. Here's how Tajiri explains it. At the time, I didn't see anyone playing Game Boy anymore, and it had lost a lot of its popularity. I was at the barbershop once, and someone asked, so you're making a game? What kind of game? When I told them, it's for the Game Boy, this guy I didn't even know said, the Game Boy? You're a bit late on that one. Everyone kept telling me, Tajiri, you need to start making Polygon games for next generation consoles. But I was designing Pokemon for Game Boy, where it's impossible to use polyagonal 3D graphics. But people kept hounding me about it, so I thought it would be ironic to include a Pokemon called Porygon. Adults notice the irony, but kids don't get it. They just think, what a cute Pokemon, and play with it. Once they become a little more familiar with computers, they'll realize, oh, that was supposed to be irony. Pokemon has tons of words that kids won't understand the meaning of until 10 or 20 years later. If you're one of the fans who's realizing right now that Porygon was meant to be ironic, let us know in the comments. If you didn't realize before this video, that means that Tajiri's 1997 prediction actually came true. And our next piece is about how Pokemon was originally planned as a much smaller game, and Pokemon's producer Shigeru Miyamoto didn't even want it to be an RPG. 
Red and Green launched in 1996, but Tajiri pitched it to Nintendo subsidiary Creatures Inc. back in early 1990, with a contract to finish it in October the same year. In fact, Creatures thought it was going to be so similar to another creature collecting game they were going to make that they cancelled it out of respect for Tajiri. In that Tomisawa book we translated, Creatures chairman Tsunakazu Ishihara says, To tell you the truth, Creatures already had its own idea for a game like Pokemon, something incredibly similar. The game was called Toto, and it used the Game Boy like an insect cage to be filled with creatures you owned. At the same time we were talking about it, Tajiri brought us his idea for Pokemon, where youths catch monsters and trade them with a link cable. It wasn't a question of which idea came first, but we did think Tajiri would wonder, how could they do this to me when it was my idea? Ishihara goes on to say creatures thought the main difference between Toto and Pokemon was going to be the link cable trading, so they ultimately decided not to make Toto, but Tajiri's small idea eventually got a lot bigger, as he explained in another Japanese publication, saying, We figured we could probably make a Game Boy game in about six months, but our goals for Pokemon just grew and grew, so we eventually realized it would be difficult to develop that quickly. Of course, ultimately, our six-month plan didn't work out. Shigeru Miyamoto liked the idea of collecting and trading monsters because it was an idea that would only work on Game Boy, and he's always loved games that are only possible on the system they're played on. But even though he liked the concept, he didn't think Pokemon should be an RPG. Here's what he said in that Tomasawa book. At the stage where we just had the basic idea for Pokemon, I didn't care what genre it would be. It was Tajiri who thought it wouldn't be complete if it wasn't an RPG. I was concerned that if we made an RPG, we wouldn't know when we'd finish. And I I thought we should just focus more on the essence of the game, but as the producer, it wasn't my call, so Pokemon ended up in the form it is now, and I'm honestly not sure if that was the right decision. Now, more than 20 years later, I guess fans have to ask themselves, would Pokemon be a better series if it wasn't an RPG? What if it was still about collecting and trading Pokemon, but the gameplay was an entirely different genre? Let us know in the comments if you think Tajiri was right to hold his ground, or if he should have listened Listen to his idol, Shigeru Miyamoto. And now we're going to jump back into cut content from Generation 2, so let's talk about one of Johto's lesser-known scrapped areas, the Lost Suicide Forest. That entire Japan-based region was scrapped, but later in development there were also parts of Johto that got cut, but can still be found in the game's internal data. Most of them are just early designs for Johto's cities. Possibly the most interesting is the Lake of Rage, which originally had an entire town built around it. There's also a tiny safari zone, once meant for Fuchsia City. But the map we really want to highlight is this forest, which the data refers to as Fuji. This Fuji forest was originally located at the foot of Mount Silver, which is based on the real-life Mount Fuji in Japan. In fact, in early builds of Gold and Silver, Mount Silver was literally called Mount Fuji. In the real world, there's a forest at the foot of Mount Fuji called the Sea of Trees, also known as the Suicide Forest. It's got a historical reputation as a home to ghosts, and it's one of the most used suicide sites globally at over 100 deaths per year. The government even puts up signs in the forest that encourage suicidal visitors to think of their families and reach out to a suicide prevention association. By the way, all this information was sent to us by Pia Carrot, a Generation 2 disassembler and one of the members of Team Spaceworld, so full credit goes to him. In Generation 2's final build, there's only one new ghost type, Mistrievous, who can only be found 
found at Mount Silver. It's likely the forest was planned as a home not just for Mistrevus, but other ghost Pokemon as well, like these two that got cut during development. But in an effort to avoid the risk of controversy, Game Freak ended up cutting the location and replacing it with this map, which bears no resemblance to the Suicide Forest. Despite its removal though, the forest can still be found hidden in the game's internal data. Did you know? The original Japanese opening for the Pokemon anime talks about what's up girls' skirts. The first line in the opening is, Even if in fire, in water, in grass, in forests, in ground, in clouds, in that girl's skirt. Eek. The line is repeated later in the extended version, ending with, In that girl's skirt. You're persistent. There's other instances of inappropriate language in the original Japanese anime. The episode The School of Hard Knocks, after seeing a picture of a schoolgirl Giselle, Brock enthusiastically says, I'll look forward to her in eight years. In the English dub, this was changed to Brock saying, She can violate my rights anytime. But in the kids' WB airing of the show, even this edit was removed. The Japanese version also had several religious references that were changed in the English release. The episode Ash Catches a Pokemon was altered to remove a mention of heaven and hell. In the Japanese dub, Ash comments on how the inside of a Pokeball must be a pleasant place for Pokemon to be, then mentions how himself and Pokemon are both heaven. This is followed by Misty saying that Ash's heaven is her hell. In the English dub, Ash proclaims his love for his newly caught Caterpie, and Misty chimes in by saying, I guess it takes a worm to love a worm. The Pokemon anime was only meant to run for around a year and a half. Due to this show's immense success, it's now one of the longest-running shows on TV. The main character, Ash Ketchum, is named Satoshi in the Japanese release. This name references Pokemon creator Satoshi Tajiri. Another character is Satoshi's rival, Shigeru, who is renamed Gary Oak in the West. Shigeru gets his name from Nintendo veteran Shigeru Miyamoto, but this reference goes a little farther. Satoshi and Shigeru were some of the default names for the player and their rival in the Japanese Pokemon games. Miyamoto was a mentor of sorts to Jijiri, and their relationship was referenced in the characters' names. In early designs, Ash looked very similar to the player character from the games. His appearance was eventually altered to differentiate the games and the TV show. According to Ash's original voice actor, Veronica Taylor, Ash was named Casey when she auditioned for the role. The name Ash may have been chosen to fit the series' tree-based naming convention. Pikachu's voice was provided by Japanese voice actress Ikue Otani, even in the show's English version. Sometimes, however, an American voice actress would take Pikachu's role if the American localizers needed additional takes. The character Brock was eventually dropped from the show. This was because the creative team feared Americans would view his appearance as a racist stereotype, mainly due to his eyes. To replace Brock and avoid any stereotyping, the team created a more European-looking character, Tracy. Tracy was replaced by Brock after the team realized nobody was offended by his appearance. Many fans wanted original characters Ash, Misty, and Brock reunited in later seasons of the anime. However, one of the show's directors, Masamitsu Hidaka, revealed that Misty would never come back as a permanent character. In an interview with Poke Beach, Hidaka stated that Misty's presence would prevent the team from continually introducing new female characters to the show. He said that switching out girls provides new eye candy for male audiences and that girls are more customizable. They can constantly change outfits and wear things like bathing suits. The show's creators also never want to make Ash a Pokemon master. Hidaka has stated that if it ever happens, the show will end. They'll keep adding new badges to earn, new areas to explore, and new Pokemon to capture until that time comes. He also explained that after the anime's first few seasons, the show became more culturally generic due to its international success. 
This can be seen clearly in Best Wishes and the XY series, where the Japanese text is replaced by a custom set of symbols. This new language actually corresponds to the modern Latin alphabet, and can be deciphered into either English or Romanized Japanese. Removing cultural imagery made the Pokémon world more unique, and also made it easier to localize. Since the text appeared to be gibberish in every language, non-Japanese countries didn't have to bother translating it. Although this show is a hit, it's had to endure plenty of scrutiny. One of its first major controversies came after episode Electric Soldier Porygon aired on TV, hospitalizing around 700 people. The episode is said to have caused vomiting, headaches, irritated eyes, and for a small portion of the viewership, seizures. Because of this, the episode was never aired again, was banned overseas, and the entire show was put on hold for four months. The animation technique used is what caused the issue. In the episode, Pikachu uses an electric attack to blow up missiles. To illustrate the explosion, rapidly flashing red and blue lights consumed the screen. The incident became known as Pokémon Shock and was a disaster for the show. Fans were deeply concerned that the show would be cancelled, but Hidaka has since stated that Pokémon was never in danger of being cancelled, due to its popularity. In the original season, a few significant plot holes are never explained. Ash and his friends never travel to the Safari Zone, so it's never made apparent how he caught so many Tauros. There's a particular episode that covered all these story beats, but was also banned and never aired in America. Titled The Legend of Dratini, this episode has a man named Kaiser point a revolver at Ash and the others. This was intended for comic effect, but the episode never made it to the US due to its pervasive use of firearms. To add to the controversy, the episode contains scenes with Team Rocket's Meowth wearing a Hitler-like mustache. Interestingly, clips from this episode were used in the series' Pokérap segments. Another controversial episode is Beauty and the Beach, which is the first Pokémon episode to be banned in all countries outside of Asia. It was criticized for its depiction of women's breasts and contains many sexual innuendos inappropriate for children. Halfway through the episode, there's a scene where James cross-dresses wearing inflatable breasts for a beauty contest. This scene was intended to be comedic, but ended up getting the episode banned for over three years. America later received a heavily edited version of Beauty and the Beach, which was titled The Lost Episode. The Pokémon Jinx was another source of heavy controversy, and had to be banned from the show, then later edited. People complained the character was racist, as it resembled several offensive depictions of black people during the 20th century. Jinx's original design appeared in several American broadcasts, but future episodes had the Jinx scenes removed altogether. In one instance, an episode that featured Jinx prominently, titled The Ice Cave, wasn't aired in America at all. Jinx's design was eventually recolored purple to address the racism allegations. This was first implemented in the games, followed by the show a few years later. The show was also impacted by the September 11th attacks on the World Trade Center. Despite being created years before September 2001, two early Pokémon episodes were taken out of circulation following the attacks. An episode titled The Tower of Terror was removed. Though no official statement was given, it's believed the episode was pulled because its name could evoke memories of the attack. The episode titled Tentacool and Tentacruel was also removed. This was due to the episode's content, which had a giant tentacruel attacking the city. A character in the episode is also seen using an automatic weapon. Although the episode was temporarily pulled, a shot of Tentacruel striking a skyscraper wasn't cut from the show's opening. This particular episode was also pulled for a short time after the passing of Hurricane Katrina, as the episode shows the damaged city flooded. The success of the Pokémon anime led to over 20 Pokémon movies being made. One of the earliest Pokémon films, Movie 3, was originally going to be completely different. It involved a real-world T-Rex, and would question what happened to the real-world animals that once lived in the Pokémon world. 
Writer Shudo Utakeshi wanted to introduce real animals into the world and address questions like why are there real trees and flowers but not real animals, and what's the difference between plant Pokémon and regular plants. This would have been done with scientists discovering a T-Rex fossil. The eyes of the T-Rex fossil would start to glow, and it would come back to life, endlessly striding forward. It would be crushing everything in its path and even makes its way to Ash's hometown. Ash, his friends, and Team Rocket would all try to stop this fossil's rampage. The dinosaur would have been stopped eventually, but Mr. Shudo never explained how. As this story was being made, no new Pokémon had been announced, and Pokémon Gold and Silver were a while away. As such, there were no new Pokémon for the movie staff to advertise, and the game staff weren't willing to make a Pokémon just for the movie. Shudo was stuck with the original 151 and the handful of Generation 2 Pokémon that had been revealed. The idea was ultimately rejected because a story where a bunch of minerals gain consciousness and come to life won't be a hit. Mr. Shudo says he went home and drowned his sorrows in alcohol after his script was rejected. A few days later, Shudo was set designs for four new Pokémon, including Entei and Unknown. A new film would be based around these Pokémon to advertise gold and silver. Did you know? The idea for Pokémon Detective Pikachu stemmed from one of the rejected pitches for the Pokémon anime. While developing the anime, the show's staff wanted to have Pokémon talk in full sentences. However, the developers of the original games, Game Freak, felt that Pokémon shouldn't speak at all. While a compromise was reached, with Team Rocket's Meowth being the only Pokémon capable of speaking the human language, many staff members still wanted to hear Pikachu talk. The original concept for the 3DS version of Detective Pikachu was simply to have a Pikachu that could talk and express various emotions. This resulted in a tech demo shown off in 2013, which included a motion-captured Pikachu that would talk to its audience. Game Freak were still reluctant to allow the team to break the rules of the series, and producer Hiroyuki Janai had to spend a lot of time convincing them that it was a good idea. Pokémon Company president Tsunekazu Ishihara was also unsure about the project. When he made an appearance on the Japanese television show Professional Shigoto no Ryugi, the show's blurb read, This summer, Ishihara started development on a never-before-seen game. It's a new game featuring the very popular character Pikachu in a bold way. There is concern, however, that if it's bad, the long-loved character would lose popularity in the blink of an eye. Fortunately, the Detective Pikachu game was a success. In April 2016, movie studios were allowed to bid for the rights to make Pokémon movies. The franchise was in high demand in 2016, thanks to the massive success of the mobile game Pokémon Go, which saw Nintendo's stocks rise by $9 billion. The rights were eventually won by Legendary Pictures, who were bidding against Warner Brothers and Sony. Legendary winning the bid was seen as remarkable, as they're owned by the Chinese company Dalian Wanda Group. Historically, China and Japan have been bitter rivals, and some thought it was unusual for a Chinese company to be handling a prominent Japanese property. Universal Pictures were later slated to handle the film's distribution outside of Japan and China. However, on July 25, 2018, it was announced that Warner Brothers would be distributing the film instead. This would be the first Pokémon film they distributed since Pokémon 3, the movie. Speculation arose that this change was a precursor to Legendary forming a new deal with Warner Brothers after their contract with Universal expired on December 31, 2018. Once they obtained the rights, Legendary wasted no time in fast-tracking the movie's production so they could capitalize on the Pokémon Go craze. It was decided, at the behest of the Pokémon Company, that Ash Ketchum would not be the protagonist of the new film. Ash already had a lot of backstory and character development from the animated show and movies, so the company wanted to try something new, starring a new character. 
Rumors began to circulate that Max Landis, who wrote 2017's Bright, would be providing the film's script. Another batch of rumors stated that Nicole Perlman of Thor and Guardians of the Galaxy fame and Gravity Falls' Alex Hirsch were in negotiations to write the film. When the movie started filming in January 2018, however, the draft was credited to Perlman and the film's director Rob Letterman, with no mention of Hirsch. Letterman was approached with the pitch for Detective Pikachu and, quote, fell in love with the story behind it. Actor Justice Smith was the first person confirmed to have a role in the movie. Interestingly, Smith's character in the film Paper Town sang the Pokemon theme in a scene along with his co-stars Austin Abrams and Nat Wolf. Pokemon, gotta catch them, it's you and me. Speaking of music, Detective Pikachu is the second time a Nintendo product used Happy Together by the Turtles in a trailer. It was also used for the Nintendo 64 title Super Smash Bros. Another interesting audio secret comes from the 2018 Pokemon World Championships in Nashville, Tennessee. After revealing the official title for the movie on stage, Rob Letterman asked the crowd to chant as if Pikachu and Charizard were fighting in front of them. This chanting was recorded and used during the film's fight scene between the two Pokémon. The plot of the Detective Pikachu movie loosely follows the plot of the game, with the two versions having many similarities. The protagonist, Tim Goodman, and the location, Rhyme City, share their names between the two versions. Various scenes from the movie also reference other Pokémon games and properties. Alongside all the Pokémon that cameo, locations like the Sinnoh region from Pokémon Diamond, Pearl, and Platinum are named. Tim's train ticket also shows that he departed from Leaventown, a pun on leaving town. The staff of the 3DS game were excited at the prospect of their work becoming a full Hollywood production, calling it a huge honor. While working on the game, the most that they'd hoped for was an animated short for Japanese television, and so they were amazed when they were told that it would be turned into a full movie. However, they were also nervous, as they had to leave creative control in the hands of legendary pictures. When the 3DS version of Detective Pikachu was unveiled, many fans began wondering who would voice the iconic character in English. While the role would eventually go to Kaiji Tang, fans overwhelmingly wished that actor and director Danny DeVito would take the spot. A video titled Great Detective Pikachu English Trailer featuring Danny DeVito was uploaded by YouTube user Teal Hollow one on January 29, 2016, a mere three days after the Japanese trailer launched. The video dubbed over the trailer with voice clips from DeVito's previous roles, most notably Frank Reynolds from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. A Change.org petition asking DeVito to be cast in the role gained over 50,000 signatures before it closed. DeVito's response to the overwhelming fan demand came on the 1st of April 2016, where he was asked during a panel if he would voice Detective Pikachu in the game. His response was a firm no, followed by the question, what the f*** is Pokémon? However, this wasn't the end of DeVito's unwitting involvement with the property. Visual effects producer for the film, Greg Baxter, confirmed to the Nerdist that the team tested audio from DeVito's role in It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia for use in the movie. While he liked the voice, it was Ryan Reynolds' voiceover that really struck a chord with the producers. Other actors considered for the role were Hugh Jackman, Mark Wahlberg, and Dwayne The Rock Johnson. Longtime Pikachu actress Ikue Otani voiced Pikachu's regular speech in all versions of the movie. In the German version of the initial trailer, though, Pikachu is dubbed with a different voice. It's unknown who this actor was or why the voice was changed for this version specifically, as it's identical in all other languages. Regardless, the voice was quickly changed, with Warner Brothers uploading a new version of the German trailer soon after. Reynolds, famous for his guerrilla marketing campaigns as Deadpool, adopted a similar tactic with Detective 
Detective Pikachu. He uploaded a humorous video to his YouTube channel that parodies method acting, telling viewers how he gets into the role. Reynolds' anecdotes involve leaving his daughters at school because Detective Pikachu doesn't know who those two little girls are, and trying to lose 182 pounds in order to better fit the character. Reynolds not only voiced Pikachu, but also provided motion capture for the character. Pokémon were chosen to appear in the movie based on three criteria their popularity, what the story needed, and what looked good or interesting in a live-action setting. Legendary worked closely with Game Freak and the Pokémon Company to narrow these choices down. They tried to include a good range of Pokémon from every generation, although Letterman expresses a certain fondness for the original 151. Pokémon Detective Pikachu is the first Pokémon movie to incorporate live-action elements. Artist R.J. Palmer is known for his realistic interpretations of various Pokémon, with his art having gone viral online. He began drawing Pokémon as a hobby in 2013, and this directly led to him being approached to work on Detective Pikachu. The film's production designer googled realistic Pokémon and, after finding Palmer's art, invited him to help work on the film designing the creatures. The first trailer for Detective Pikachu gained more than 30 million views in two days on YouTube. Alone. Upon the movie's reveal, some longtime fans were skeptical about the realistic Pokémon designs, as well as the fact that Pikachu could talk. While the realistic look of the creatures was well-received by some, others felt the choice was ugly, considering the series' original simple and cartoony aesthetic. Concerns about the film's popularity were set aside when test audiences responded very positively. In January 2019, three months before the Detective Pikachu film had even released, it came to light that Legendary were already working on a sequel. According to HollywoodReporter.com, the studios hired 22 Jump Street writer Oren Uriel to write the script. Uriel also worked on the upcoming Sonic the Hedgehog movie and Men in Black International, but has so far made no comment on his work for the next Pokémon film. Also in January, WeGotThisCover.com uncovered that two new movies are also being made for the franchise. The first will be a spin-off of the Pokémon Mewtwo, which is not the upcoming film Mewtwo Strikes Back Evolution, and a movie adaptation of the games Pokémon Red and Blue. Legendary apparently wants to flesh out the events of the games, using live-action and CGI to tell the story of Red and his journey through the Kanto region. It seems that both of these projects are set in the Detective Pikachu universe. It appears as though Legendary are launching a cinematic universe of live-action Pokémon films, with one of Detective Pikachu producers seemingly confirming it. Later in March, IGN published an article about their visit to the set of Detective Pikachu during filming in 2018. While on this visit, IGN asked producer Ali Mendez about Legendary producing more live-action Pokémon movies. Mendez seemed to imply a Pokémon cinematic universe was in the works, saying, Pokémon is such a rich universe. There are so many ways you can go inside it. We're trying to get the first movie right, and then once we've done that, we'll see where we go from there. But absolutely. Even the Pokémon themselves, there are 800 of them. We're going to have a lot of them in Detective Pikachu, but we want to play with all of them at some point. Whatever the case, the future of Detective Pikachu seems bright. The film's opening weekend box office earnings are estimated to be up to $100 million, putting the film in line with several Marvel movies. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. 
that crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.